Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We are still in our series on praise and worship, and we have spent three weeks on this topic so far. We will probably go today and one more week. Uh, that's what it looks like anyway, and we'll see. We'll see. I'm not going to limit that. If God wants to continue taking us that direction, I'm open to it. But we've uh, discussed two imp- important terms. Uh, we mention them every week, two Greek words uh, that, uh, where we talk about praise and worship or worship. And uh, they give us two different sides of the worship coin, as it were. And those words are, anybody remember what they are? Somebody, somebody raise your hand if you know one of them. Yes, it is. Proskuneo. Oh, that was a terrible throw. All right, Mom, what's the other one? Oh, sorry. Anybody know the other one? Latriuo. Good job, Nicole. Oh! Ah, that was there. If you can touch it, you can catch it. Latriuo. Proskuneo is that heart of worship, that, that uh, knowledge, the fear and reverence of God. And the latrio is our service of worship, our obedience, our lifestyle of worship, but also our, what we would call the worship service. It's the outworking of that proskuneo. And uh, what we talked about, this is review, that for latrio to be meaningful, uh, for it to mean anything, it has to flow out of that proskuneo. We can, otherwise, we're simply going through the motions. Either we are serving him, out of legalism, or you know, out of just it's pure religious ritual, or we are not serving him at all. It's it's empty without that proscuneo. However, for the proscuneo to be real, to be meaningful, it must produce latriuo. Faith and works go together. You know, the Bible says both. Faith without works is dead. It also said works without says works without faith is dead. So the proscuneo. You can, you can talk all you want or think all you want about how full your heart is for worship of God, but if that doesn't come out of your mouth, if it's not expressed with your body or in acts of service, it's meaningless, all right? But the service itself means nothing if it's not flowing out of a heart of worship, proscuneo. Uh, there was an old, we talked about how the proper expression of this is not and I think this was just last week. We don't come to the point where, oh, God saved me and he did this for me, therefore I have to do these works. It's, I'm so grateful to God and I love him so much, I just want to know what can I do? What can I do for you, Lord? It made me think of that old imperial song. Uh, just want to know what I can do for you. Look that up. I mean, that's a classic contemporary, it's not Christian rock, it's contemporary Christian music. A totally different genre there, but it's a, it's a cool, cool song. Check it out. It's on the album. One more song for you. If we can find it, maybe that will be our outro. After we uh, close out the service and people are leaving, maybe we can bring that up on YouTube or something and play it, right? Right? So I don't know who I need to talk to about that. Anyway, one more song for you is the album. Just want to know what I can do for you is the song. Check it out. It's a good song. So, we talked then, and this is what we spent some time on last week, is that there are many valid expressions, biblical expressions of worship. Clapping, singing, raising of hands, bowing, dancing, shouting, all of these things are about playing of instruments. These are all valid. They're all biblical. They are commanded, in fact. 
uh, we, we, we mentioned, uh, spent, in fact, a great deal of time talking about how we can't simply say, well, it's just not in my heart to do those things. God said do it, and why isn't it in your heart to do those things? We need to be expressing our worship to him. Uh, true love is worth expressing. Uh, and also, uh, there are some guard, guardrails there. We cannot just say, well, I don't like to do those things, but I'm going to make up different ways to worship the Lord. That opens the door to some heretical expressions. We, we, you know, how we mentioned that the Old Testament Israel, even if they were worshiping Jehovah, they couldn't worship Jehovah with the rituals of Baal worship. They not only had to worship the right God, they had to worship the right God the right way. And where we landed on that, the takeaway quote was, there is biblical room for different expressions of worship. What there is not room for is no expression of worship. Uh, Another way of saying that was, let all things be done decently and in order, but let all things be done. A lot of people want to throw every especially every charismatic expression of worship out because, well, let everything be done decently in order. No, let everything be done, but do it right, do it at the right time, do it in the right spirit, right? So today, what I'm going to address is something that I hope will light a fire in you, something that will spur you on toward more meaningful worship and meaningful praise. And we come back to this uh, something that you might have experienced. I would suspect that most of us have experienced this to some degree or another at one time or another, and that is this sense of, look, I believe in God. Doctrinally speaking, I don't doubt my salvation. I have trusted in the scriptural account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have confessed him as Lord. Uh, Therefore, I don't doubt my salvation. I am a Christian, but... I don't really feel I'm going to do it. I'll raise my hands. I will honor him with my lips. But I wish I felt it more. I wish that this sense of honor and praise and worship were just bubbling out of me. But I'm not experiencing it. It's not tangible. It's, it's not something I can sense. It's not something that is impacting me as much as I think it should, as much as I wish it should. Uh, And again, relax a little bit, okay? Because we talked about this, I think, in the first week. Uh, Genuine worship is not about being honest about our mood, okay? It's not an honest expression of our mood. It's a doctrinal and correct expression of the truth. We worship him in spirit and in truth, not in mood. Uh, It's submission, okay? So it's good if we say, I'm going to do this if I don't feel like it. And you know, my experience is, if I do it when I don't feel like it, the act of doing it brings me uh, closer to feeling like it. But I'm going to look at it a different way today, uh, because I get it. It ought to be easier. We ought to find it easier. And I think, and f- actually I am convinced, that the reason for this is that we do not think often enough, or long enough, or deeply enough, about what God has done to make worship even possible for us. And this is a perfect time of year to address this. Because even though we don't follow a liturgical calendar per se, this is Lent. Lent began Wednesday, and I forgot to say anything about it. Lent was Ash Wednesday. But the 40 days leading up to Easter are traditionally uh, a time for Christians to meditate on the sufferings of Christ leading up to the crucifixion. 
uh, culminating at the cross. Uh, Christians have traditionally fasted during this time or at least given something up, and that's why almost everybody in here, I'm sure, is familiar with the phrase, uh, what are you giving up for Lent this year? Uh, People are encouraged. This isn't a biblical requirement, but many uh, denominations through the centuries have encouraged people to lay something aside for Lent in order to better appreciate uh, this, again, this season and uh, this time of leading up to the greatest event in history and what we celebrate is Easter. And by the way, this is a little, for those of you who are interested in, in word origins and stuff, I know a lot of you are familiar with this too, but Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, is preceded by Fat Tuesday, which is where, you know, Mardi Gras, right? This is one last Hooray, you know, let's, let's go, let's completely indulge and overindulge ourselves because tomorrow start, we start afflicting ourselves, right? And another, uh, another word for, uh, for Mardi Gras, another term for that same celebration is carnival. You've heard this, right? And that is made up of the words carne vale. You know what that means? It means goodbye meat. Farewell meat, it really does. And so this is why a lot of people give up meat for Lent. This was, this, and this was, I think, the, it was enforced in certain, uh, at, cer- at least certain branches of Catholicism. There would be no meat eating during Lent. And then they said, well, you can't have meat, but you can have fish or fish on Fridays or something like that. Anyway, that's kind of like a farewell meat party. That's... What I want to do today is just take a brief, we're not going to get deeply into this thing. Uh, it would be a whole sermon or ser- certainly a whole sermon series in and of itself, but I want to look again briefly at the tabernacle and what the Old Testament believer had to do in order to get to God. And I trust you'll have a greater appreciation half an hour from now uh, for what Christ did to get us to God. And the tabernacle, as you know, most of you are aware, the tabernacle was a portable version of the temple. God gave instructions for build, to build the tabernacle while they were in the desert, while they were still on the move, so it had to be portable. And we've mentioned this just kind of uh, on the oblique the last couple weeks about how God gave them specific instructions how to build the tabernacle. He didn't just say, hey, fix up some tent. It had to include certain elements down to what the coverings were made of. These tent walls were made of that enclosed the courtyard uh, what you had was a, an, an enclosed courtyard about half the size of a football field uh, with, a, again, a tent-like wall around it. It didn't have a roof, but inside it you did have the tabernacle, which was completely enclosed. But in the courtyard, you had the bronze laver, which was a basin. It was a wash basin that made of highly polished bronze. We've talked about this before. I believe the bronze laver represents the Word of God because the priests... Who, were, who did the work in the courtyard and in the tabernacle had to be ceremonially clean. Well, the laver, this polished bronze, showed them where the dirt was, and it provided water for cleansing, for cleaning that dirt off. This is what the Word does. James compares the Word of God to a mirror. And when we look at the Word of God, we're not just reading about God, we're reading about us, aren't we? And it shows us, and when it shows us what God's standards are, when it shows us what holiness is, it also shows us how dirty we are, shows us where we're missing, it shows us where the dirt is, but it also provides us with the, method, with the means of getting clean, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus said that, now you are clean by the word I've spoken to you. John fifteen three. So, the other item in the courtyard 
is the big one. It's the one that represents the cross, and it's the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. And this is where, you know, you had to come in. It's worth noting, by the way, there was only one way into that courtyard. You couldn't climb over the wall. You couldn't lift up the curtain. You had to come in through the eastern gate, uh, which, you know, it's, it's, again, even the covering of the tabernacle represents Jesus. He is the only way. Jesus talked about people who tried to sneak over the wall, but there was one way in to the kingdom of God. So we come into the courtyard, and you never come empty-handed. You had to come with a sacrifice. And this sacrifice was offered, would offer, was offered to the priest. The priest, they went through the ritual, if this was a sin offering, where the individual bringing the sacrifice would lean on this animal, uh, lean heavily on this animal, and symbolically... The sins of the individual or the individual's family uh, were laid on this animal. And then the animal was killed. You know, the, guy, the, the, the Israelite, the Hebrew, didn't come to the tabernacle to offer himself on the altar. But it was his sins that the sacrifice was being, was being offered for. So the sins were symbolically transferred to the animal. The animal was ritually killed. The blood was spilled. The animal was offered up in a burnt offering. And then the blood was saved for something we'll get to here in a minute. Then inside the tabernacle, only the priests could go in there. All right? You, the, the average Jew, his, he got as far as the courtyard. But he brought what he needed to bring. A sacrifice. The priest could go into the tabernacle, and what was in the tabernacle, you have uh, a table of showbread, you have the candlestick, and the altar of incense. And in each one of these, there is some, there's some imagery, some rich imagery, because all of this pre-shadows Christ. In fact, you look not just here, but if you go start at the, you can start at the Passover if you want. The Passover, and then their experiences in the wilderness, and everything up to the tabernacle slash temple. God designed all these things and gave them to Israel to give them clues to prepare the way for Christ. So, because everything in these things pointed to Christ, and the observant Jew, the one who actually paid attention to what they were doing, was supposed to be able to spot in Jesus everything that was prefigured in the tabernacle particularly the sacrifice. Uh, so you've got this uh, the showbread. This, this, this was a table with 12 loaves of bread, one loaf for each of the tribes, each of the families of Israel. And there was also wine on the table, and these loaves were swapped out every week, and the priests would eat the bread. But the table was, uh, it, not that there's not more to it, but I want to move through these. The table was a reminder of the covenant. The bread and the wine was a ritual covenant meal, and it reminded them that this wasn't just mere religion, that they had a contract. They had a covenant with God that went back, not just to Moses, but went back to Abraham. That God specifically chose them as a people to bring the Messiah into the world. And uh, there were these promises right there in the law, that got the things that God was going to do for them if they remained faithful. And this table was an indicator, a representation of that covenant meal, which was part of sealing the covenant uh, in that society. And then, of course, the bread itself, I believe, uh, is a wonderful representation of Jesus, the bread of life. The lampstand, or the candlestick, it was the only source of light in the room. This was essentially a light-proof tent with this six... Uh, you had seven 
uh, candles on this candlestick. They weren't candles. They weren't wax candles. They were fed by oil. The central shaft, the tallest one. You've seen these things. Uh, menorahs, right? And, and the central shaft was full of oil, and this oil fed the other six candles. So they all burned oil from that central shaft, and they illuminated that central shaft with the light that they got from that central shaft. Uh, light was the, was the expression of the highest ideal in Hebrew society. That's why it's important. You know, we see that the Bible says God is light. In him is no darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But you know who, what else he said? He said, you are the light of the world. Now, if God is light, Jesus is light, we are light, where's all the light coming from? And the candlestick is a great illustration of that because he is our source of light. We are the light of the world, but where do we get that fuel? Where is that oil coming from? It's the Holy Spirit. We draw from God himself, and if we're doing it right, we shine that light back on the source of that light. Just like that central shaft in the candlestick supplied the six shafts that then illuminated the central shaft, right? Then you had the altar of incense. This was a, a small altar with hot coals that were kept, kept hot, kept burning, and once a day, uh, or sorry, morning and evening, the priest would, would sprinkle incense on this altar, create this sweet aroma. And once a year... On the Day of Atonement, the high priest and the high priest only would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle that on the altar of incense. Instead of incense, he would actually pour the blood on the hot coals so that the smoke rising up from the coals was actually part of the blood offering, the sin offering. And he would walk through this cloud of blood smoke pull aside the veil that separated the holy place. Remember, the holy place now in the tabernacle, the holy place is what had the table, the candlestick, and the altar of incense. The one other chamber in the tabernacle was the holy of holies. This is where, what was in the holy of holies? One more piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this chest that contained... At least at one point, it contained the tablets of stone, the tablets of, of stone that the law was written on, the ones that were broken. Remember, Moses comes down from the mountain, sees that they've already violated their covenant, they're worshiping the golden calf, and he throws the, the tablets down and breaks them and has to go get another copy. These broken, the broken copy is put in the Ark of the Covenant. Also, there was a pot of manna, what was manna? The manna was God's supply. That's what he gave them to sustain them for 40 years. What was their reaction to that eventually? We don't want this. We want meat. We want something else. They rejected his law. They rejected his provision. And, re- and they rejected his leadership. They rejected his authority because the other item in there was Aaron's rod that budded, the symbol of the, of the authority of the priest. And they rejected that. So all symbols of three different manifestations of Israel's sin were in this chest. And the lid of the ark was what was known as the mercy seat. So the priest, after the sacrifice was offered, he would take the blood of the sacrifice, pour some on these hot coals, walk through this blood smoke, pull this veil aside. This was a heavy veil that, that was a clear separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. Remember, this happens one day a year. On the Day of Atonement, he would take this blood and he would pour it out on the top of the ark, on the mercy seat. God would look down from heaven 
at this chest that contained the evidence of man's sin, and what he saw was the blood, the blood of a, of a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, a blemish, and his wrath was turned. Their sins were covered. That's really what the word atonement means. It means something else to you and me today. Uh, but the, the purest sense of that word, atonement means covering. And this blood was poured out on the lid so that instead of seeing man's sin, he saw death, he saw payment, he was satisfied. His ju- justice, his judgment was satisfied for a year. This was all symbolic. And they knew it was symbolic. They knew because God had made it clear, and he made it clearer over the centuries. This was, a, this was all an illustration. This was God's flannel graph. It was his PowerPoint. He's doing something to prepare them for the Messiah who is really going to come and fix it. But once a year, you know, and, and throughout the year they'd bring their sacrifices. Once a year they would bring the spotless lamb, lamb without blemish, offer it. The blood would be poured out on the altar. The blood would be poured out on the Ark of the Covenant. And they are good to go for another year. But remember, they're not clean, they're covered. What Jesus did was become the perfect sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice that is prefigured on the Day of Atonement. Perfect is in that Jesus himself was without sin, without spot or blemish, and perfect in the sense that this sacrifice was complete. It wasn't for the next year. It was once and for all. Done. It is finished. I'll give you a... I think I I know I have, but for those of you who've never heard it, I'll share quickly a story of a conversation I had with a gentleman who was very faithful to come several Saturdays in a row from the Kingdom Hall. And we had some great conversations And uh, one of the things he was very fond of reminding me was he had been studying the Bible for 30 years. Uh, And I think think he was proud of it, uh, but I think he also was trying to intimidate me, like you're not going to come up with something that that I haven't already considered. And uh, one of our first conversations, possibly our first conversation, he asked, he he was talking about, I I began to see, because I didn't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, but I began to see there were some clear differences here. Uh, And... I knew I could see right off the bat we disagreed about the crucifixion. I said, well, so what is it that we are supposed to do? What's our, what, what are we here for? He said, well, we're here to finish the work that Jesus started. I said, well, I believe that Jesus has given us a mission, but I believe Jesus finished his work. No, he didn't. He just started it. I said, well, maybe this is just, maybe this is just a matter of wordplay here, but w- what do you think Jesus meant when he said, it is finished? And he said, I'm not aware Jesus ever said that. I mean, I can understand maybe not knowing at Parbar Westward and four at the Causeway and two more at Parbar. How do you not know Jesus said it is finished? Uh, Because that's pretty important. When Jesus died, it was finished. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. His blood doesn't merely cover us. It makes us clean. I mean, you think about God looking down, seeing the blood on the mercy seat, rather than the evidence of man's sin in, underneath that mercy seat. And we look at our sinfulness. And, you know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on that. That is not a formula. That is not a prescription for reciting your sins before God every day. That word confess is homologia. It simply means to agree with God. It means when you stand before God, you don't argue with him about whether or not you have sin or have sinned. You simply agree that you have. And if we're humble that way, then he's faithful and just to forgive us those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When God, you picture God looking down and seeing that mercy seat and seeing the blood and they're covered, you have to believe this is a life-changing, world-changing piece of information, knowledge, that when God looks at you, no matter what you did today, no matter what you thought today, when God looks at you, what he sees is the blood of Christ. Not just the blood of a lamb that covers you for a year, but the blood of Jesus Christ that makes you clean. God's not ignorant. God knows you better than you know yourself. Well, then he knows I'm sinful. Yes, that's why he sent Jesus. That's why he gave his son. He knew you weren't going to get yourself out of this mess. He loves you, so he gives us Jesus, and he sees the spilled, perfect blood of Jesus when he looks at us and sees us as clean. You have to understand that if not for the cross of Christ... We understand, I think we get it as believers, if not for the cross of Christ, we would wind up in hell. That's the, dest- that's the destiny of the unsaved, of the unredeemed. But we also have to understand that if not for the cross of Christ, we would have no access to God. The, the high priest could stand before God like that one day a year. The ark was behind that veil that made a clear distinction between the holy and the unholy symbolically separating a sinful man from a holy God. But when Christ died, the Bible tells you, you know, that veil was, brought, it was part of the temple. Everything that was in the tabernacle was built, you know, as, as a building rather than being a, a mobile version of it. The temple was simply a permanent version of the tabernacle. So that veil still existed in Herod's temple in Jesus' day. And it says when Christ died, that veil was ripped It was torn, and this was a beautiful message from God that we now have access, unfettered access to him by the blood of Christ. We no longer need to go through those rituals. He's not behind the veil anymore. And when we worship, when we sing, when we bow, when we praise, when we raise our hands, we have to remember that a dear, dear price was paid for that privilege. You know, Easter is going to be a glorious celebration. Much as I love Christmas, and you know I'm a winter guy, you know I'm a Christmas guy, and I love how everything kicks in at Christmas. You know, this, all these prophecies, everything that they've been waiting for, it, it starts when Jesus hits the ground, right? When he is man, it made, uh, uh, takes on flesh. But really, the whole thing is leading up to the cross and the resurrection. And that's why Easter is the Christian holiday. And it's going to be a celebration. But it's proper in this time leading up to that celebration to remember the suffering. You know, think about military parades. You remember, uh, the, you, uh, there's a movie I've seen once or twice called It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, 
the, uh, the, the narrator is talking about the, you know, during the, the, the war years and what George did here and there. And, it says, and on, on VE Day, they wept and prayed. On VJ Day, they wept and they prayed. But you think about the parades, the honor that we bestow on our military, uh, our war veterans, and rightfully so. Think about the medals, the way we celebrate, and the way we, we, we you know, Fourth of July, man, this is a celebration. It's a party, and this is proper, but there should always be an, a, a somber element to that, shouldn't there? Because in the midst of celebrating the victory, we are remembering the terrible price so many people paid to achieve that victory. The blood that was spilled, the lives that were lost. It should be. There should be something sobering about even those types of, even celebrations when we're celebrating that kind of thing. You know, there are statues, there are parks, there are schools, there are streets all over the country named after these heroes. We celebrate them, and yet at the same time, we're mourning them. There is, in this season of Lent, and there's nothing, nothing, again, don't get legalistic. If you don't want to observe Lent, don't observe Lent. Uh, And the giving up something, you know, the... the, uh, my mom told you a couple weeks ago, about, or maybe yeah, a week or two ago, about the app, uh, Seek God for the City, great Lenten devotional. If you want to give something up, I think it's useful because it's a, it's a daily reminder. I, I would treat it like we do the year-beginning fast. Uh, you know, sweets is a great thing to give up because there's no candy like Easter candy. Easter candy is the best candy, and if you give up sweets for 40 days, you're going to love those robin's eggs, those peeps. And uh, chocolate-covered marshmallows. I don't want to hear about anything else. If you like candy better than those, you're wrong. Jelly beans, jelly beans, okay, jelly beans. But there is, during this season of Lent, there's this opportunity to focus on the sufferings of Christ in order to better appreciate his victory over the grave. And if we can give ourselves a taste of that suffering, again, let's deny ourselves something for 40 days. It's, it's, a, it's good for self-discipline. It's good for reminder. But also, you go without meat for 40 days, you are going to love that first bite of ham. You go without sweets for 40 days, you're going to love that first jelly bean you put in. You, you will have an increased appreciation. And as we focus on the sufferings of Christ, not that we can't read anything else, but let's really remember, it's so important that he just didn't bring a vial of his blood and pour it out. Jesus Christ was a real man. He is real. But he walked this earth as a human being. He was no more, his, his identity as God the Son did not make the cross any easier for him than it would be for you. This was intent. It's where the, you know, we get, that's where we get the word excruciating. When we, when we go to describe pain, that's about a, a, as high a level as we can as strong a word as we can use. What kind, how would you describe your pain? It's excruciating. Where does that word come from? It means out of the cross. What he endured in his body. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was wounded, why? For our transgression. He was bruised, why? For our iniquity. By his stripes, we are healed. His body was a wreck. His skin was torn open. Blood spilled out. I don't know, it's been a... How, how long ago did The Passion of the Christ come out? Remember that movie? 
How many of you actually saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? I know most of you probably did. Powerful movie. Powerful movie. And I don't know about you, but the part, I'm watching this thing, you know, we were, we, I think we went and saw it as a church, and uh, sitting down near the front, and I love the, the power of the screen to completely kind of command your whole, when, when you're watching it on the big screen, it sort of, it gets all of your attention. You kind of are in it. And so I was really mesmerized and moved by a lot of this movie, but the part that, where I just broke, the part where I broke down was the beating. In fact, it wasn't so much the beating as it was Jesus positioning himself for the beating. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, depending on who's describing the crucifixion, you can, you can split hairs. Some say he was strung up, and I believe he was, where his skin was pulled tight so that when they whipped him, that skin would pull apart doesn't matter for the purposes of this movie. He, 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 he knelt down over something. I don't know if it was, what was it, a, a something wooden or a rock or something, and stretched himself on purpose. He wasn't forced down. He wasn't tied down. He knelt there and put himself in position on purpose to receive that beating. And every time, every time that whip struck, you should hear, for me, for me, for me. The resurrection is a beautiful thing. The cross is a beautiful thing, but it's also an ugly thing. It's a terrible thing. And we don't do ourselves any favors. Listen. I believe God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I believe it is the Father heart of God that you walk in victory, that you walk in supernatural supply and supernatural healing on this earth. But we don't do ourselves any favors by believing that and not focusing, meditating on the passion and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Everything that we enjoy, including the opportunity to worship him, is only possible because he went through that. He went through it for you. He went through it for me. I want you to stand up with me now. I'm going to present a couple challenges, a couple invitations, an invitation and a challenge. Number one is God loves you so much that he did that for you. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.